The Coffee People podcast is presented by Rostar Coffee Packaging. Rostar is the digital printing company that makes high-quality custom-printed packaging for coffee products that will make even the smallest roasters look like a really, really big deal. At Rostar.com, you'll learn how quickly and easily they can take you from a quote to a stellar-looking coffee package, enabling you to live out your packaging dreams. If you are a coffee roaster looking to upgrade your coffee bags, go to Rostar.com. Link in the Coffee People Podcast's show notes. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Coffee People Podcast, which is part of the Roast West Coast Coffee Network. And it's presented by Roastar Coffee Packaging. If you're roasting coffee and you want sustainable and sharp-looking packaging, check out Roastar.com. I'm Ryan Wolt, and this is the first official episode of Season 8. Today, you're going to hear my conversation with Richard Messino. He and his father, Mike, run the coffee and avocado farm Rancho Delfino in Carpinteria, California. Rancho Delfino is part of the fringe network of coffee farms. These small coffee farming operations are springing up all around Southern California. You may remember earlier interviews we've done with Jay Rusky, the founder of Fringe and Goodland Organics. If you miss those chats, I'll be sure to link to them in the show notes and again on roastwestcoast.com. I know you've already pulled out your phone to look for that, and since you're there scrolling, be sure to follow at Rancho Delfino on Instagram. Rich and I met recently at the Specialty Coffee Association Expo in Portland, Oregon. He shared a sample of his coffee, and I had a chance to sip it while getting some green therapy from all the coffee plants he had brought into the convention center. It was quite lovely. As it is, being back in the podcast booth, I'm drinking a good cup of coffee that I brewed myself today. It is a V60 pour-over that I brewed with beans I picked up from one of this show's partners, Steady State Roasting. I hope you're out there somewhere enjoying a great cup of joe from one of your favorite roasters too, because it is time for this Coffee People conversation with Richard Messino, farmer at Rancho Delfino. Honestly, it's great just to see you again after the expo. You're my first interview since the expo. Oh, cool. But for the listeners, could you say who you are, uh, what your farm is, and what your role there is? Yeah. So my name is Richard Messino. My dad has a little avocado farm up in Carpinteria, which I have been working with him really like... I don't want to say full-time, but as much as I possibly can since about, well, I've always helped him out up there, but really since the pandemic, when my work shut down is when I really got into it and we kind of went full pour. My role is just him and I, really. (laughs) We have a little bit of help and we can get help, but, you know, he has a farm manager that takes care of the avocado trees and does a lot of the fertilizing the avocado trees and stuff like that. And he'll help us pick the coffee cherries when he can. But the problem is, is 
the big time for picking avocados is the same time for picking coffee cherries. So a lot of times it's just my dad and I and any friends or people that we can get to come and help us out. So you just, you said coffee cherries, you have planted uh, coffee trees there. How long have the trees been in the ground? And I don't want to forget it. What, what is the name of your farm? The name? Oh, sorry. Yeah. The name of the farm is Rancho Delfino. And uh, we're part of the, I guess you can call it the fringe network, fringe California coffee, uh, which I know you've had Jay Rusky on here a couple of times. So we're Rancho Delfino and Carpinteria. The backstory to the farm is kind of really funny. My dad, uh, his background, he had a construction company here in California, Southern California in the Bay Area for a while. And he retired in about 2008 or nine. Him and my stepmom, actually it was my stepmother, found the property in Carpinteria in about 2011, I think. And it was just a rundown on a steep hill about 500 avocado trees and she loved it and he loved it. So they bought it and built a house on it. And my dad was, he became like an avocado farmer kind of as a hobby. So he fixed up the plants, the trees, learned about irrigation and nutrients and all that stuff and started, you know, working on the avocado trees. And it was about 2015, I think, when my dad saw this article in a local, it's a, I guess, a avocado industry magazine. <laughs> and he saw this article about this guy named Jay Rusky from Goleta that was growing coffee. And so my dad thought, well, wow, that sounds kind of cool. I think I'm going to do that. So he went to the Santa Barbara's farmer's market, found Jay's stand, walked up to him and started a conversation and said, hey, I want to grow coffee. And this is all before Fringe. Jay was still... Jay had been playing with um, coffee since about 2002, and he was ramping up to start getting these other farms involved to grow more coffee. And so we were one of the really early, early people farming with him. So we started pretty small in 2015, and then the company Fringe came online in 2017. So 2015 is when we really started. I don't want to... <laughs> Growing coffee, but really learning more and making a bunch <laughs> of mistakes and having to replant. And, you know, it's been an interesting ride. I've heard stories from other burgeoning farmers and a few in the Fringe Network as well, just about how the awareness that it might take three to five to six years before you're really kind of uh, the plants have matured and you have a second crop or, a, you know, they're starting to produce product that you actually are proud of it was a surprise. Before we get too far down that farm story, uh, you mentioned that you've really been working with your dad since kind of the beginning of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. What were you doing before you were doing this? So for the last 25 years, I uh, was in film. I was a camera assistant. Uh, first, it's a focus puller, first assistant cameraman in motion pictures. And I was on the road a lot and, uh, well, actually I was on the road between about 2009 till the beginning of 2020. I was mostly, I'd come here to LA, prep the next job, go back on the road. So I was constantly traveling. And then when I was here, 
I would go up, mess around the farm a little bit. But during that time, like you said, we weren't really producing a lot. And so, you know, we'd go up, pick a couple hundred pounds, give it to Jay, keep a little bit, play with it. And that's when it became, well, okay, well, how do we make this better? What are we going to do? And then in 2020, when the shutdown happened, work just completely stopped for us, which was kind of a blessing in hindsight, because that's when I spent more time up there. It was a perfect place to be during the pandemic. That's when I really, really got a lot more involved with my dad. And 2020 was the first year that we really had like a, a I would say a real harvest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no. Uh, well, my question that, I mean, I'm going to follow that up. Questions is my side of this uh, yeah. interview, by the way. That's what I do. You're on the road a lot. You're experiencing things around the world. You're traveling with film. And I've seen some of the films that you've worked on, some pretty big names people recognize. Yeah. Did you kind of have a first experience with coffee before any of this coffee farming concept came along that you remember that you thought this is something that is important to me? Or, I mean, how was coffee involved in your life? I always considered myself, you know, I like good coffee. That's what I, th- and I thought I knew what good coffee was. <laughs> I mean, really, I shouldn't say that because good coffee to anybody is whatever you like. That's the biggest thing that we've learned. You know, I have, of course, my biases, but whatever you enjoy, then that's a great cup of coffee. So I thought I knew a little bit about coffee and But really, it was in 2017 when Jay started Fringe and he was looking for investors and my dad and I both wanted to invest separately. So we went up to meet with uh, Jay and he made us a cup of his natural geisha. And I never had a cup of coffee like that. I'd never in my life tasted something so fruity floral and you know this nice sweet acid to it it was just mind-blowing and so i thought oh okay well this is cool i you know i want to do this this is great and so we invested in fringe and then we thought okay well since we're going to grow coffee let's like get into coffee so we're going to start roasting our own coffee we started out with the baymore and just kind of self-teaching each other you know, watching videos online, figuring out what first crack is. And we pretty quickly grew out of the Bay. I mean, the Baymore, so it's a great way to start. And it's a fun, you know, you can make great coffee with it. You can roast great coffee and you can learn a lot. But the more that we watched, the more that we thought, okay, well, we need to move up in this. And so we ended up buying a couple of uh, Alio Bullet roasters and that's where we started really learning a lot more about the roast and the curve and the rate of rise and all that stuff. But it was really, sorry to go back to your question, it was really that cup at Jay's that was just, I had no idea coffee could taste like that. So I'm going to plead a little bit of ignorance about you and the, and the farm here. You know, I do research the guests on this show. I always say that I don't, but I, I do. Uh, at least Google you. And I really couldn't find a lot about Rancho Delfino. You don't have a huge presence online or anything like that. Are you roasting and selling coffee or were you doing this just for you? We were just doing it for us. All of the sales went through Fringe and still go through Fringe. Gotcha. 
you know, you can go to Fringe, you can pick Rancho Delfino coffee, and that's where you can buy it from. And so really, we were just roasting to learn more. I was giving a lot of it away to friends just to get feedback, how they liked it. And we are trying to build more of a presence online, you know, with the website, with the Instagram and all that stuff. But again, it's just the two of us. And neither of us are very good at that. Admittedly, I'm not very good at Instagram. <laughs> so I don't, you know, I always hashtag wrong or I do at wrong, you know, all that I'm trying to learn. And it's, it's a lot to take on kind of. It seems so simple, but there's so many intricacies to your online presence. It's an entirely different skill set. It's a full-time job in and of itself. I mean, if you're going to do it really well, right. uh, I've certainly learned that. It's the least favorite part of my job, uh, or at least uh, what I call my job, which is the show. But it's also you know, one of the few ways, if you're starting out, that you can reach out to people and kind of create an audience and make you know, few mistakes, but you can at least, people can find you just organically. It's not as easy as it used to be, but it's, it's still possible. You work with your dad. It sounds like you have a good relationship based on the little bit that I, I know about you and have seen in pictures. I have also worked with my dad and it can be a lot. Uh, That might just be my dad, but what is working with your dad? Like, you know, working with your family is the other, are other parts of the family involved? You know, what is that experience like for you? Uh, Luckily, my dad and I have always been really, really close. He knows everything about me, probably too much. And I probably know too much about him, but we've always been really close. So we have a really good working relationship. There are obviously things that frustrate me about him. And I'm sure he would say the same thing about me. We have a good relationship. There's just things that, you know, I'm very organized because of my job. You know, we were trained being in the camera department. We had a lot of gear in and out. I had to manage departments. I had to manage people. And so you become very organized. And that really goes into the farming aspect. And, you know, a lot of data collection. Every time we do anything, I've made charts that both of us can get access to and share. And so, like, for instance, if we're going to fertilize the plants, you know, I want to know how much fertilize we use, you know, the date, the time. And even now we're putting in like the temperature of the day, the weather conditions, you know, because it's all about data collection. And so, He's not as good as that. So I know that there are gaps there. So I'm trying to fill them in and stuff like that is gets to be a little challenging from time to time. But, you know, we're also very good with each other. He listens to me. I listen to him and we're both learning at the same time. So that makes it kind of fun. When we make mistakes, you make mistakes and no harm, no foul. We're just going at it together. And so all in all, it's a really good relationship. You know, you, you really got started at the beginning of the pandemic. I keep coming back to that, but it, it's such a big thing. And we're talking just after they announced the that the pandemic is over officially from an emergency standpoint, yeah. you know, however they make those decisions. But where are you at? Are you going back into working in film? Have you gone back? Have you transitioned your life into your Richard, the farmer now? I mean, what is your kind of life work-life balance? Where are you at? 
I've been pretty lucky once we started working again in film, I've been lucky enough to have jobs where I'm in town now, which I think is, that's part of the pandemic is we were traveling much less. There was more things spread out across the country, more jobs spread out across the country, I should say. So there was a lot more work here in LA and I was able to go in between back and forth. So I'm still in film. Of course, right now it's really slow for everybody because of this writer strike. For instance, I didn't work in March and April. That gave me a lot of time to, you know, be up there, go to the SCA, for example, drive all those trees up there and get to meet everybody, all that kind of stuff. So if I could make a living in farming, it would be fantastic. And I'd love to do that. I just am not sure yet that we can do that with just coffee alone. Our farm, we're very lucky that the avocados are there because that kind of pays for everything that pays the overhead. And the coffee is more of a passion project at this point. But I think that there's a great market for it. And, you know, California coffee is delicious. It's fantastic. You know, I mean, we were in the Brewers finals in Portland, which is a big milestone for California coffee. So I definitely think there's a market for it. You know, when is that, when are we going to be able to see more money to make a living off of it is the big question. But it's a passion for both of us that has really taken over both of us. So we're constantly talking about, you know, where can we put more plants on our property? Maybe we should lease property somewhere else and do another part, grow somewhere else so we have more coffee those talks, we're always talking about that and looking for the right opportunity to do that. And like I said, if I could make a living off of it, I think it would be great. I just, the life is so rewarding and, you know, the life in film was great. Uh, went to a lot of really spectacular places, but it also takes its toll on you. It's very all encompassing. And you make a lot of sacrifices for that. And frankly, it feels like it's a young man's game more and more, you know, <laughs> as you get older, you kind of like all of a sudden when I was here for six months straight, I thought, wow, it's kind of nice not to have to go anywhere. <laughs> this is, oh, yeah, I can have a life and, oh, wow, this is kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, so, and then, you know, working with the dirt and with nature and, you know, there's something about, Picking the coffee cherries is a tough job. It's very tedious. We're doing, you know, obviously it's all by hand. We pick, we start really in July and go until about late October. And we'll pick 15, 16, sometimes 20 times. And you're going back to the same tree over and over because the cherries are ripening at different times and you want the ripest cherries with the most sugars in them for all those flavors. So it's tedious, but it's also super rewarding. You're out in this beautiful landscape. And the interesting thing about the coffee tree is it'll flower while the cherries are ripe. So you have these flowers and I don't know if you've ever smelled a, a coffee flower. I mean, they're just, they're, I don't know how to describe, it's just delicious. It's so nice. So you've got all these fragrances, 
you're picking, your hands are just so dirty because there's all the juices on them and all this stuff. And these bees are working the flowers around you. And it's just, it's this relationship that, I mean, it gives me the chills to talk about. I love it. It's great. And at the end of the day, you're beat, but you feel productive because you're really producing something. That's what I love about it. Do you remember the feeling of having picked a batch of cherries and then roasted them and drinking that first coffee? It's amazing. Did you remember having that expectation and how that coffee turned out? Yes. The first <laughs> time we did it was early on. So when you say the trees don't really produce for three until three to five years, that's correct. But they do have some cherries on them about year three, not a whole lot. And they're not very good. But, you know, we would pick them. And then all of a sudden we got these cherries and you're thinking, okay, you know, because again, we give most of them to fringe, but we always keep some for ourselves because of both my dad and I, when we get into something, we get into it. We don't want to just pick the cherries and give them to Jay and have them sold. You know, well, how do we do it? What's, what's the post harvest like? This is the funny thing about being a coffee farmer is you can go online, you can find tons of information on how to roast coffee, on how to brew coffee, on different brewing techniques. What water do you use? You know, there's all these, but when it comes to the farming aspect, there's really not a lot of information on that. So we're trying to figure it out as we go along. So the first coffee we picked and we thought, okay, this is cool, man. We grew this coffee. We picked this coffee. We processed the coffee. It's rested for now two months where you're just waiting to see what it's going to taste like. And all of a sudden you drink it and we went, oh, huh. <laughs> Wow. You want to like it so bad. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Okay. Well, what did we do wrong? <laughs> What's not? And then, you know, we learned, okay, well, they need to be on the tree longer. They have more sugars in them. And these are the things that you learn as you go along, which in the world of coffee is takes a long time. You know, like I said, when you pick your cherries and you process them, you know, you're waiting, depending on the processing you're doing, like if you're doing a natural, that's four weeks of drying typically. And then you want to let them rest for at least another four weeks before you do kind of a gut check on them. So that's two months that you see what the results are. So that's why the data, going back to what I said about the data is so important, because then you can look and say, okay, what did we do? What can we do different? What can we do to make it better? Or this is great. We need to mimic this next year. And oh, yeah, you're working with the weather and the climate and all the changes that happen day to day, year to year. Which you have no control over. Yeah. Uh, there's a whole, I mean, I don't want to say religious, but uh, it's almost, it's just this, you, there has to be some sort of faith, I would imagine, in what you're doing. And if I'm doing things this way, I believe that they will work out. But when they don't, I have to react to that. I would think not only physically you're reacting to it and how you're treating your plants, but also emotionally, you have to be able to withstand those ups and downs as you go. Yeah. And, the, you know, go, that was a big thing in the beginning because we're planting in different parts of the property and some parts, it's just the soil is not, it's too compact or it's, there's too much clay in it. 
And so those plants don't work, but these plants over here work really, really well. Now, why is that? And where can we find this? Okay, well, this seems like a good place over here, but for some reason that doesn't work over there. Maybe there's too much shade or maybe the trees aren't protected enough. So these are all things that, yeah, you have to consider. And you're right. You do have to, when you go into it, you go into it all in, right? And you do the best you can and you just think, well, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So this coffee should be great. And when it is great, you're really happy. And when it's not great, then you go back to the drawing board and figure out, okay, what's different? Yeah, I know a lot of us over the last three or four years have learned what it feels like when you spend $100 at the garden store to get one 25-cent tomato. Yeah. The name Rancho Delfino, where does that come from and, and what does that mean? Delfino is a family name. My dad's name is Delfino. He goes by Mike or Michael, but he's Delfino the third. So his father, his grandfather... And I was supposed to be Delfino the fourth, but my mother said, no, <laughs> not going to happen. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Delfino is a family name. And so it's kind of an homage to the ancestors. And we're next to the ocean. So Delfino, Italian, dolphin, it all comes together. You kind of mentioned uh, California coffee and, and how it's getting better and how it's it's you know, recently been recognized as a, as the quality of the coffee. The U.S. has been importing coffee forever and ever and ever. How do you envision kind of that marketplace growing and changing? And then also, do you consider the ethical questions uh, as opposed to growing here, as opposed to importing? You know, where do you fall on that line? Well, I look at California coffee like California wine. For example, if you've seen the movie Bottle Shock, it's a pretty good his history of uh, California wine. And California makes great wine, obviously. Uh, California in general has something like over 3,000 different crops. And so why not coffee? Why can't we grow coffee here? But to do that, you know, we're out of the coffee belt. And so a lot of people think that, well, you can't grow coffee there. Well, we can, and but to do that, it has to be really high quality. It has to stand out, which is luckily what's what we're producing, what's happening. You know, on any given day, if you Google the most consumed beverage in the world, there's coffee and tea that are always kind of back and forth, right? You'll get 10 sites that say coffee and 10 sites that say tea. There's enough room for everybody in the coffee industry to grow coffee. But the way that I look at it, my dad and I look at it, is that we're growing a different type of coffee. It's a high quality coffee. It's gonna be, maybe you're not buying it and drinking it every morning, but maybe it's for special occasions. Maybe you're having a big brunch and so you're gonna get California coffee to serve everybody. And there's a market for that in, I think all beverages with craft beer, with you know tequila, any kind of spirits, there's always a higher grade and it gets spans the whole region. That is interesting that you just said tequila and there are some Southern California local tequila distillers that I really like that are really oh. good and high quality. And they're, they're getting their agave from Mexico as well. But I don't know that anyone has ever asked them about kind of the ethical question like I just asked you. 
Uh, I'm not saying it's not a valid question. I just don't know that people approach other beverages with kind of the same magnifying glass as we do coffee, perhaps because it impacts so many people every day. I want to ask you a little bit about the community that you are in. The farm is still, I mean, young in, in farming terms. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Your father met uh, Jay at the farmer's market. Are you guys engaged with the community at, at the farm level or is it more we're doing our thing, we're passing it on to Fringe to kind of push out into the world for now? You mentioned that you have a website and an Instagram and that sort of stuff coming uh, or up. How are you engaging with the community? Yeah, well, within the community, you know, there are a couple of really great specialty coffee shops in the area. Funny enough, there's a great Turkish coffee place in Carpinteria in a very obscure location that we stumbled onto one day. And the guy that runs it, uh, Saeed, he just he's he loves coffee. And although it's Turkish coffee, all his coffee, his specialty coffee, he does light roast for everything. And so when we go into him and introduce ourselves and, you know, yeah, he kind of had no idea that there was coffee grown in the region. So there's a lot of that word to mouth stuff and fringe really is doing the marketing for it and pushing the word out there, getting the word out there. Whereas for us, it's more about, like I said, word of mouth, talking to people and there's about, well, there in Carpinteria itself, Carpinteria proper, I think there's five coffee farms. Between Goleta and San Diego, there's about 60 farms right now. Over 100,000 coffee trees are in the ground in Southern California. Wow. Those are going to come online. They're going to start producing in the next year or two. So there's going to be a lot more inventory. And that was one of the challenges with Fringe in the beginning is that there just wasn't a whole lot of inventory. You know, we had, there's about a dozen farms producing get the word out there and all of a sudden people are buying it. Next thing you know, you're sold out and you're sold out for five or six months because you're waiting for the next harvest. I think as we get more product, the word is just going to get out there more and more. And, you know, going back to like the SCA, for example, I mean, our booth up there was beautiful and everybody came up and I can't tell you the amount of people that said, where are these plants from? And I said, California. No, no, but really where'd they come from? No, no, they were grown in California. What? And that's why, you know, I'd always have the coffee there. Here, let's taste some California coffee. And, you know, as with farming, it's just a game of patience. And you spend more and more time doing it. And eventually, I think it'll be pretty big in the coffee world. Again, going back to us just being in the finals. I mean, that's a big milestone. A lot of people found out about it. And uh, it was funny, Jay and I were at one of the industry parties on Saturday of the expo and people were coming up to us all of a sudden saying, hey, aren't you guys, you guys are those California coffee guys, right? And go, yeah, okay, cool. So it's just like that, you know, word starts to spread. It just, like everything else, it takes time. I commend you for having the energy to go to a party after a day at SCA. Oh, man. I made it back to my Airbnb and that was it for me. I wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> it was rough. Uh, that whole week, I needed like a week of recovery after the SCA. 
Well, what what did you take away from that event besides obviously the connections and meeting people? I mean, we met there that and that was cool. And you know, what was that experience like? I know for me, I came into it with really I had never been to SEA before, so it was all a, a new experience for me. It was new for me too. That was my first time up there. It it was great. I had such a great time and really the most fun I had was sharing our coffee with all those people that didn't know it existed or didn't think it would be good. In fact, I it's kind of funny. I had one guy walk up and he said to me again, you know, where are these trees from? Ethiopia? And I said, no, no. Or first, excuse me, he said, these are geisha trees. And I said, yes. Ethiopia? And I said, no, no, these are California. And he started laughing. And I said, no, really, they're California. I'm just finishing up brewing some. Why don't you wait a second? You can try some coffee. And he just walked away. And I just kind of, we all kind of started laughing. It was pretty funny, but having people taste the coffee up there and seeing their reaction for me was the biggest thing. And talking about what we're doing, talking about, you know, really how, you know, going back to coffees grown all over the world. And what's interesting about California coffee is it goes from the farmer up to J, up to fringe for post and then roasting and then selling. So it goes through two or three hands before it gets on the UPS truck and gets to your house. That's a great thing. You know, that's, it's kind of changing the whole name of the game. And for me, telling people that's exciting and fun. Raising awareness on the world coffee is important to me as well, because a lot of people don't think about the farmers and how much work gets put into it and how little money they get at the end. And so to raise awareness on that too, it's not California coffee, that's fine, but you know, we need to really think about the whole supply chain and from beginning to end. I love teaching people about that. And I think it's important for people to know. Yeah, it is a very interesting dynamic that the supply chain questions of it, and not even that as we're talking about moving forward in, in an era where this generation and the next generations are going to be aggressively dealing with the impacts of climate change, the idea that a product is grown and stays in its community to, to some extent uh, or in its region is people are going to say new, but it's also a throwback to a time when Towns had, you know, you had the town brewery, you had the town market, you had the town farmer. And, you know, that's kind of was your world with the exception of kind of special things coming through on, on uh, trade routes. I personally kind of see a future in which we push a little bit more in that direction where people are more aware. I mean, I live in Southern California and until I started talking to some of the farmers at my local farmer's market, I didn't realize that I could pretty much get all the fruits and vegetables I wanted grown locally. I mean, for the most part, you know, we can get a farm box and it'll have more food than we could ever eat. And instead of going to the grocery store and buying, say, strawberries from Peru or wherever, you know, it's it's a whole thing. Earlier on, we were talking a little bit about how you were traveling for the better part of a decade and a half or so pretty exclusively uh, with your work. What lessons did you learn from, from those travels? Is there anything that you can look back on now as you had a chance to I don't want to say slow down, but a a chance to spend time in one place a little bit more that maybe you think were good life lessons. Hmm. 
Well, I've been an avid traveler pretty much my whole adult life. I've loved traveling. And when I go to places, I really like to immerse myself in the local culture. And so it kind of is a full circle back to exactly what you were saying. If I'm, you know, I don't know, let's say somewhere in Eastern Europe, I want to eat what they eat. You know, I don't want to go to McDonald's or, you know, Hard Rock Cafe or something like that, right? I want to know what they eat and the time of year they eat it. Because still a lot of places in the world, you know, here in the States, you can get apples year round. You can get bananas year round. But a lot of places in the world still, like, you know, Germany, for example, when they get their, uh, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, their spagel, it's the white asparagus. <laughs> It yeah. comes out in the end of spring and everybody's really excited and all these restaurants start serving it and people just go crazy for it. Then it's gone. And then you have to wait till next year. And that to me makes the food that we eat so much more exciting. If that makes any sense, you know, again, being in Southern California, like yourself in the beginning of the year, you get those delicious oranges and there's nothing like them. And then they're gone after a couple of months. And of course, you can still buy oranges from all over the world, like you said, or blueberries or any kind of fruit or produce. But to me, it's more important that you eat the things when they're supposed to be eaten, when nature tells you it's time to eat them. And to me, again, it makes it more special. And so I think going back to your question in the travels, that's really been a big part of my travel experiences and what I've learned. And being a lot more open to every culture and really being grateful for what you have, what I have. Yeah. I think that's, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll turn a little bit towards uh, the rabbit hole that you found yourself in with coffee. Am I mistaken in thinking that you became a Q grader? <laughs> I am a Q grader. That's actually a, uh, really kind of funny story. Um, again, we really dove into the coffee and when the shutdown happened during the pandemic. And so we had picked one day, I was driving back to LA and my dad had dropped the coffee off up at Fringe or the cherries, I should say up at Fringe. And then he called me and said, Hey, uh, Paige and Griffin, they're two employees up there. Paige and Griffin are going to get their cue. Uh, you need to go with them. And I said, get my what? He said, get your cue. <laughs> I said, the what? What is that? And he goes, you know, your cue. So you can like rate coffee or something. I said, okay. And he said, they're going to go up to this boot coffee campus up in San Rafael. Okay. I went online and signed up, looked into it. And I thought, oh, okay, well, this is going to be, this will be cool. And I thought that I was going to go up there and be trained take the tests and then get my certificate, which anybody that's done the queue, that's 100% not the case. <laughs> and so it's actually pretty funny. I called up there a couple of days before the class started and spoke with their campus director, Valerian Harala, and told him, you know, I'm coming up. And he said, oh, did you take the sensory course? And I said, no. And he said, well, you need to take that before you come. And I said, oh, I think I'll be all right. And he kind of laughed and I remember the first day we showed up, everybody introduced ourselves and you know, there were seven of us, including myself in the class. And 
I was the only one with like zero cupping experience. And the first calibration we did, I remember looking at the cupping sheet and I was thinking, oh my God, what? (laughs) (laughs) And Willem is talking about it and everybody seems to know what's going on. And I just went out there and thought, okay. And I just kind of watched what everybody else did and tried to mimic them. About halfway through the first day, we broke for lunch. And I remember going outside, calling my dad and I was saying, any idea what you've gotten me into? Holy man, God, this is, oh my God, what have I done? I can't believe I'm here, Jesus. And then I just went through it. And, you know, the class was cool. Everybody was so nice. We made a lot of good friends there. And everybody weirdly kind of started rooting for me because I was like the underdog in the whole thing. It was one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do. And the first time I passed 15 of the 19 tests, which I was so proud of. And then I learned when I came back home after it, I practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced for about six months before I went up for my retakes. And yeah, I'm really happy that I did it because it taught me so much in what people are looking for in quality and what constitutes high 80s, low 90s coffee versus a low 80s coffee versus a commodity coffee. Having that knowledge from a growing standpoint is, I think, really helpful because I kind of know what notes we should try to be looking for, you know, to help us get a coffee that's more in that range as much as we can. And the great thing about my personal experience getting the queue, for me, it worked out not knowing what I was getting into because had I known what it was going to be, I probably wouldn't have done it. So going in blind really was the best thing for me. And those guys up there, Willem Boot and Valerian have been mentors, great teachers. We're all good friends. We're still in communication. We talk all the time. We went down to Panama and uh, my dad and I visited Willem's farms down there, his La Mula and La Cabra. And, you know, it's just really expanded, I think, our knowledge from a growing standpoint. Sure. They saw someone else who's, you know, drank the Kool-Aid. Of course, you're going to stay yeah. friends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so to speak, the, drank the coffee, so to speak. Well, and that's what it is, too. When you go into this coffee industry, people are also passionate about it, which is what's so much fun about it is even the hobbyist, everybody is just, they've got this deep passion and appreciation for it, which I love. And I get passionate about people's passion for things, which is why the show exists. (laughs) Is there anything that we didn't cover today that you think people should know about, you know, Rancho Delfino farming in California and, and what comes next for you? Uh, as a coffee person? Well, I think a big thing that we've learned, which we are very passionate about too, is the type of farming that we're doing. You know, we're trying with like biodynamic farming, regenerative farming, you know, we are using, like when we mulch, when we prune the coffee plants, we mulch, those cuttings and use the mulch and the coffee plants because that's where you get the better microbacterial growth for the soil. And that's important to us. 
And the products we use are important to us. And when you're learning, you know, what kind of nutrients are you using? What kind of stuff are you putting into the ground? Because that all plays into what's growing there. And so ants, for example, ants are a little bit of a problem when it comes to coffee growing. But you can do some uh, boric acid and some sugar water. You put those cups around the property and the ants go into that instead of the coffee. And, you know, it's all organic material. It's all natural stuff. We're not certified organic. We looked into it. My dad looked into it when he first got the farm, but it's a lengthy process and it's an expensive process. So we're not certified, but everything we use is organic because we're concerned about what we're eating as well. And, you know, there's plum trees on the property, there's blood oranges, there's Meyer lemons, there's a bunch of stuff that we eat as well. And so that's important to us. And learning that whole aspect of agriculture is very exciting to me. And I really, really, really love it. So what the future holds, hopefully we'll be able to expand. Hopefully we'll be able to put a lot more trees in the ground because we love doing it. And I would not to toot our own horns, but I think we're getting pretty good at it. And we're <laughs> producing some really, really good coffee. And so there's nothing quite like when somebody comes up there and you brew some coffee that you have grown on the property and you give them that cup, or even when you first grind it and that aroma comes out and people are going, whoa, man, what is that? And you brew it and they drink it. And the look on their face is really so rewarding. And it just makes you feel good. Made something really delicious that people love. I have uh, kind of two last questions for you. This one is normally my last question, but it is when you are out in the world, you're not drinking coffee that you've grown yourself, which is insane to me. What do you order at a coffee shop? Uh, boy, that's it's one of the tough things about being learning so much, being not, I don't want to say being a curator, but learning about the different notes in coffee and then kind of figuring out what you really like and what you don't like, because it does make it difficult out in the world. So I have two things. Whenever I'm in a new town, I always look at the different coffee shops if anybody's ever offering like a cup of excellence pour over, I'll go there first and try that. And a lot of times I bring beans with me. And if I have to, I'll just chew on the beans as I'm going <laughs> along. Uh, if I'm going somewhere for a long time, I bring a brewing kit with me with a, I have a grinder and my little pour over kit and, you know, I'll bring coffee with me. But if not, yeah, I, worst comes to worst, I just have some beans that I'll just eat along the way. <laughs> I have not done that. I, uh, but now I might, uh, I'm taking a long road trip here in a few weeks. So, uh, I'll have to keep some, some good beans in the car, maybe from Rancho Delfino. Yes. So the last question I'm going to ask you, and it's selfish and based purely on your career history, which is if you had to become a superhero, what superhero would you be? Oh my gosh. And why is the important part of that? Oh my gosh. Oh, Boy, I really have to think about this for a second. What superhero <laughs> would I be? This is why I like answer asking the questions because I don't actually have an answer for myself either. Because <laughs> every uh, time yeah. I think of one, I'm like, oh, well, but they have this skill and they have this skill and there's this emotional aspect to their story. So I'm leaving it up to you. I guess with my film history, 
I worked on a lot of Marvel projects. So, and I'm not a big kind of comic book person. It never was when I was a kid, but I think I know the most about those superheroes. You know, Iron Man is pretty cool. The suit can do just about anything and everything. And to be able to fly around or to go underwater to do all that stuff with that suit and be virtually indestructible, I think that would be a pretty cool superhero to be. And not only that, just because you could go so fast up in the air, dive down and go underwater for so long. Yeah, I think it would just be, I guess it would be Iron Man. <laughs> well, when uh, when the writer's strike ends, I'm going to start working on a script about an Iron Man-like character who is fueled by coffee beans. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> we can collaborate on that. I would love to. <laughs> it sounds like a good movie to me. Uh, as we were sitting here, I came up with the superhero I would be who doesn't exist yet. But I've got this squirrely little puppy walking around, jumping on me in the podcast booth. So I, my superpower would be uh, understanding what is going on in the mind of a dog. Uh, I think we'd all be. Oh, man. You see, that's a good one. You had me on the spot. I was trying to think of something <laughs> but I, I, It sounds like you're a dog lover like me. And my dog, I'm just in love with her. And it, if she could just tell me what she wanted, it would just make, or if I could tell her, if she could read my mind, it might be easier. Yeah. Richard, I, I really appreciate your time today and just kind of hearing your story. I like to hear stories where people have made choices in their life that may not have seemed obvious in the first place. You know, I, I doubt there was a time 10 years ago where you thought, you know what I'm gonna do someday? Farm coffee. Uh, that's what I'm gonna do. Never. Uh, so that's inspiring to me and, and I just appreciate you being here. Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad that we met. Um, I've always really enjoyed your podcast. I think you have a great show. So I really appreciate being on. It's it's exciting and you're fantastic and it's really <laughs> cool. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Okay, here are some key takeaways from today's episode. Fathers and sons working together. Oh boy, I've been there. It can be incredibly rewarding, but no one knows how to push my buttons like my dad, and I get the impression it works in reverse for him. I commend Richard and Mike for tackling a challenge as demanding as farming together. Rancho Delfino is in Carpinteria, California, notably outside the traditional coffee belt. They are one of many coffee farms popping up in the region. For a long time, Richard's career in the film industry kept him on the road. When he wasn't working, he was engaging with culture and community in the locales that he found himself. For a few years, there were only brief interludes at the farm. The coronavirus grounded him for an extended period. In retrospect, he sees that as a blessing in disguise. Rancho Delfino has become much more a part of his life. At the farm, Richard found another use for the skills he has been cultivating in his first career in particular being organized and collecting data. Working with his hands and cultivating a product to share with the world is a bonus. However, this is the modern age, and a small business, even an agricultural one, needs an online presence. I can attest that the need to build and maintain a website, a social media, can be daunting, even if it is an oft semi-necessary evil. The at Rancho Delfino Instagram is up and running, and a website is on the way, even if the focus is generally on the land. 
Richard used a term near the end of the show that I wasn't familiar with, so I looked it up. Biodynamic farming is a way for farmers or gardeners to build a symbiotic relationship with the soil. Called an alternative agriculture, biodynamic farmers look to maintain and restore soils in a search for efficiency, sustainability, and a limitation of soil erosion. There are other ethical and ecological reasons for biodynamic farming, but balance between the farmer's needs and doing what is best for the land seems to be the gist of it. Finally, Richard, if he could choose, would be an Iron Man-like superhero, one who may be fueled by the coffee he grows. You can learn more about Rancho Delfino and Richard on RoastWestCoast.com. I'll make sure the important links are in this show's podcast notes, which hopefully you can find wherever you're listening. Thanks to Richard for spending some time sharing his story with me. His interview came with the added stress of being the first guest of the Coffee People podcast season 8. I'm always a little bit rusty to start a season, but he made the conversation really easy. I thank him for that too. And I thank you for being here, for listening to the stories of Coffee People, for being inspired by their entrepreneurial efforts, and for supporting this podcast. If you are in the early stages of your coffee journey... I want to support you too. Season 2 of the Coffee Smarter Education Podcast is currently recording. The first episode drops next week, so be sure to find it on your favorite podcasting platform and hit the follow or subscribe button. It is specifically geared to enable coffee drinkers to brew a better cup of coffee at home. If you're like me and you're trying to recreate that great coffee that you just had at the coffee roaster, you don't want to miss any episode of the Coffee Smarter Podcast. In addition to our presenting sponsor, Roastar Coffee Packaging, which you can find at Roastar.com, this podcast is supported by some great coffee industry partners, including Coffee Cycle Roasting, Ignite Coffee Company, Morea Coffee, First Light Whiskey, Cape Horn Coffee Importers, Zumbar Coffee and Tea, Ascend Coffee Roasters, Moster Coffee Company, Steady State Coffee Roasting, San Franciscan Roaster Company, Crossings Coffee, Ascento Coffee Roasters, Camp Coffee Company, and Hasea Coffee Source. If you're listening to this show the day it drops, I'm probably at Hasea right now, cupping with co-owners and brothers Jared and Luke Hales, and ogling the burlap sacks filled with green coffee beans. This podcast, Coffee People, will be back next week with Charles Carpenter, the founder of Tequani Design in Denver, Colorado. This episode of the Coffee People podcast, which is part of the Roast West Coast Coffee Network, is, was, has been written, produced, and recorded by me, Ryan Wolt. I hope this episode has found you happy, healthy, and with at least a thread of sanity left, enabling you to make it through the day. Always tip your baristas, and be sure to drink good coffee.